This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. In this Wigs Extra episode, we present something a little unusual, a speech that Wig Emmanuel Kukasharian gave to the Legal Studies Association. Asked to speak about basic legal concepts in the context of the legal studies syllabus, Emmanuel couldn't resist the temptation to go philosophical and presented a speech about what law is and how it can be conceptualised as a meme. Many thanks to the LSA for sharing this recording with us and allowing us to present it to you. Thanks, Sophie. Um, and can I thank Erin and Wendy in particular for roping me into this? Um, and the LSA as a whole for inviting me to speak. I, I regard this as quite a privilege. Um, if it's true that the rule of law is that which allows our society to function and the basis of our society's success, um, I think it is that you, the teachers of our children about the law, who really do hold, without hyperbole, the most important role. And so the chance to speak to you about that is, is one that I'm, I'm so happy to have. I'm asked to talk with you today about basic legal concepts Um, and I noted as I reviewed the syllabus that it requires students to define law. So I asked myself the question, Emmanuel, define law Um, and I'll tell you what, I spent about 20 minutes thinking about it and I couldn't come up with a succinct definition. So I did what any self-respecting lawyer with 20 years or so of experience does and I googled it. And I came across the Wikipedia definition. I promise you I'm going to go a bit further than the Wikipedia definition. But I came across it. And and what it says is, law is a system of rules created and enforced through social or governmental institutions to regulate behaviour. It's a nice definition. It's descriptive, I suppose. It's a little bit technocratic for my tastes. It tells you how laws are made in the sense that They're made through governmental institutions and what they do, they regulate behaviour. But not really, I say, it doesn't really tell you what they are. What they are is hidden behind this phrase, a system of rules. It begs the next question, well, what's a system of rules? Um, And if you think about that definition a little bit more, it kind of, the assertion it makes is that rules are created and enforced through institutions. That assertion is quite a novel assertion. Novel in the sense that it's only really been true in the West for about the last 500 years. Before that, people would have told you that laws came from gods. Now, the reason I raise this is because, and some people actually believed that, I don't know whether it was always cynical or not, but there were certainly people in society who believed that laws came from gods. And today we live in a world where there is no objective truth that comes down from God. And so when you come to think about what these systems of rules are, um, you're left with this idea, well, if it's not coming from somewhere objective, where is it coming from? The postmodern answer is... Sorry, I'm I'm being being interrupted by the floor being creaky, so forgive me if I seem distracted. Um, You're left with this postmodern answer that laws are the rules that people say they are, powerful people say they are. And look, I'm, I'm not quite satisfied with that answer. So I have a researcher who's a law student. She's second year or first year at 
UNSW, and she recently graduated from legal studies. So I asked her, what was your answer? And we had a discussion about it for, again, about 20 minutes or so, and she gave me one of her assignments that she'd done, and she was a pretty good student, it seemed to me at least. Uh, and I read through it, and it occurred to me that if I take this time to talk to you about what the standard answers are and that sort of thing, I'm not really going to be adding anything. You guys have got all the test books. You've got all of the answers. So I thought what I'd do is present what I say is something of a different answer to that question. And here it is. What is the law? The law is a meme, okay? The law is a meme, and I don't mean the picture on the internet of the cat that you like to share, uh, which we all like to share. Um, I mean a meme in, in the sort of classic, in, in the original sense of that, an idea, a custom, or a value. So what's a meme? A recipe for cooking bread is a meme. The ideas we teach our children about how to cross the road, you know, look left, look right, look left again, that is a meme. It's something that I have in my mind or you have in your minds that passes between individuals. And I'll come back to this in a bit more detail. But just to sort of lay out where I'm going, I, will, I suggest to you that memes are like genes. So you, you all know how genes work. Genes are the information that we have in our body um, that tells, us, tells our body how to work. Memes are the information we have in our mind that tells us how to behave. So if genetics is the study of genes and how it affects us and this idea of survival of the fittest comes into play, that idea also applies to memes. Now, this is a bit out there, so I'll I'll explain that a little bit more in detail. Um, But I'm just trying to ground the idea that there might be another source of what law is that doesn't come from the divine right of kings or power and doesn't come from simply you know, powerful people saying this is how you should behave. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through a potted history of the law, uh, not all of it, uh, and I'm going to apply this idea, law is a meme, to see what pops out. And what I hope to achieve is showing you a completely different way of looking at the law and a lens that sheds lights on a lot of the topics in the syllabus so that even if you reject my idea as a whole, you've come to look at certain ideas in the syllabus in a different way or prompts for discussion might come up. And in the context of that, I'll touch on the meaning of law customs, the characteristics of laws and so on. Um, And I am being ambitious, but if you can hold your critical minds for a moment, um, I'll give you a bit of a tour, a little bit of exegesis um, of these things. So what I'm going to do is I'll touch on, when I say history of law, I'll touch on tribal laws, the code of laws of Hammurabi, Um, Rome, then the common law and parliament and legislation. And I'll look at them very briefly through this mimetic lens, Okay, So let's start with tribal. It's easy to imagine every society, even early tribal ones, having a series of rules, customs and the like and punishment being meted out either between parties or by some chief. Um, These were, in many respects, indistinguishable both from what we call religion today and also what we call law. Uh, So far as we know, these were oral traditions passed on by way of word of mouth or by physical example. And they were in that sense, in the sense that they were ideas passed from the mind of one person to another, memes. 
We drop. We often gloss over this tribal part when we talk about the source of laws and what law is. But I want to pause here and talk about memes in light of that. So, as I said, you, you all know what genetics is. You all understand the idea of survival of the fittest. Living things pass on things, pass on genes, information, to their offspring. Those genes lead to successful outcomes. For example, an opposable thumb. And if you've got an opposable thumb, you do pretty well and you go on to be successful. You might have a gene that pops up that says, well, you have a third arm, and if you have that, you fail. Mimetics is the same idea, and it comes from Richard Dawkins in his book called The Selfish Gene, which he wrote in 1978. And he defined it as a unit of culture, an idea, a belief, or a pattern of behaviour, which is, quote-unquote, hosted in the minds of one or more individuals, and which can reproduce itself in the sense that it jumps from one mind to the other. And a law is precisely that. It is a custom, a value, a rule that jumps from my mind into other people's minds and between minds. So, like a gene, a custom or a law or a rule can lead to a successful outcome or not. So let's imagine an absurd law, but one that has historically existed. A law that says, you will sacrifice your firstborn child. Right Now, over time, that law is going to screw up your society pretty badly. Firstly, you're going to have less children. Secondly, you're going to have all the mental health problems that comes from horrifically murdering your child in a public place. So that law, which we, we understand or we're told that certain people who worshipped Moloch in some time in history had, has thankfully been wiped out so far as we know. And it dies out for good reason. It dies out because it doesn't work. It may take a lot of time to die out, but over time, because it doesn't lead to survival, it fails. And so we can say, just like genes that don't lead to survival, memes, in this case laws that don't lead to survival, die out, and those that do tend to remain. And remember, it's not always one way. You can evolve yourself out of existence. You can, and history is replete with societies that have passed laws or come up with laws that don't work and over time those societies come to an end. Okay, so moving on to written law. The the earliest example commonly recognised of written law is the Code of Hammurabi. Um, There are earlier ones. I think there's a bloke called Ur-Namu who was the king of Ur about 2100 BCE who's said to have written a Code of Laws. But... Sometime in about 1700 BCE, uh, the god Shamash gave, who was the god of the sun, the governor of the universe, uh, amongst other things, gave Hammurabi, according to Hammurabi, uh, the king of Babylon, a code of laws. And again, I, I, I mention Shamash not because I say that that's what actually happened, but to note that that was the foundation for this document that Hammurabi put forward. It came from this divine source. And you'll all be familiar with at least the, the basic idea of the code that, was under, that underpinned the code, that is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, but it also had some other rules that are interesting. For example, the Code of Hammurabi prevented assaults of pregnant women which led to miscarriage. And so what's that? That's a rudimentary anti-abortion law. 
as far back as about 4,000 years ago, give or take. And it's interesting to think about the way that that's, that's termed. It prevents assaults against women that lead to abortion. Because today we might be able to terminate a fetus without physical harm to its host. But back then that was not impossible. And so when you look at the things that need to be survived, the things that your society needs to be, do to survive, they can change over time. It's a pretty bad idea to allow abortions where what that means is a bunch of men beating up a bunch of women. Uh, but in circumstances where technology might have changed, you might open yourself up to different views of the law on abortion. Um, so there we see law as a meme responding to changes in technology and, in effect, in the environment in which we operate. So the act of writing down the laws had within it a series of ideas that we take for granted now and we call, that each of us, I think, would say is what the fundamental aspects of the rule of law. For example, the idea of certainty. The laws were written down. You knew what you'd got. If you did X, Y was the outcome. Uh, Hammurabi put his code up on big tablets, or he probably had people do it for him, but the, the tablets were put up all over the place um, because people were to know the law. Um, these days, of course, the common law assumes that people know the law, a fiction undoubtedly, but a, quite a convenient one. But here we see the idea that people shouldn't be punished or, or controlled by laws that they don't know. And what's that? If the meme is not in your mind, then you ought not be governed by it. Hammurabi's code also appointed judges, as well as allowed for a committee of men, and it was men, sadly, um, that effectively were to make decisions in his absence. And there you see the rudiments of a jury. Again, we're going back almost 4,000 years in history, and you've got these key concepts that are starting to be developed. It even had rules about how judges should behave, so that if a judge uh, tried to change a verdict after it had been sealed, after it had been finalised, uh, he was bound to pay 12 times the amount of the loss that, that, that was in discussion during the trial. So there was rules on judges even back then. And so, looking at this again through the mimetic lens, we see three examples, certainty, knowledge of the law, and rules about how judges ought to behave, limiting their power, that survive today in one form or another. And I say that they survive because the societies in which those rules have been applied have been the societies that have functioned well and therefore have succeeded in the same way having opposable thumbs means that we've succeeded as humans. Um, perhaps that's putting it a bit high, but um, I think the, the point comes across. Uh, the laws as memes, as ideas, have been around some of them for a very long time um, and they've persisted through history. So when we get to Rome, so I'm skipping a fair bit of history here and I'm going to do Rome in very quickly... Um, Rome at about 450 BCE has its 12 tablets. So you've still got you, you, this idea of writing the law down persists. The ideas have matured a bit. There's a lot more of them. There's a lot more rules. But there's still an expectation, there was an expectation, that every citizen of Rome at least would know what was on those 12 tablets. And there was a jury. It was 32 men, I think, at the time. 
Um, so that idea persisted and grew. There's now a need, because of complexity, for magistrates and jurists to study the law and to answer questions of law. So now you have people, specialists, who are really applying themselves to the question of what the law is. What's the right meme here? And as the empire grows, so from 450 BC to about 11,000, sorry, 1100 years later, about 550 CE, the Emperor Justinian figures out that the laws are just so complicated now that we're going to have to do something about this. So he gets together some legal scholars and they put together all of the laws and refine them and figure them out and kind of put together what the, the corpus juris civilis, that is um, effectively a couple of books, when I say a couple of books, a couple of uh, many volumes, but a couple of books that set out what the law in the Roman Empire was to be. And there's that tension there. As life gets more complicated, more laws are needed. As we get more laws, the law gets so complicated that nobody knows what it is, um, not even the expert jurists. And so from time to time, that law needs to be re refreshed, summarised, recodified. It's a problem that persists today. And in part, Parliament, which I'll come to in a little while, is a way that we deal with that. Justinian's solution, simply restating the law, even though he did it in a very complicated way and he had experts involved and so on, is in a mimetic sense little different from one man, King Hammurabi, saying this is what the law is. And what's the problem with that? What's wrong with one man or woman saying this is what the law is? Well, you all know the risks that arise from having a population where everybody has the same genetic traits. If everyone has the same genetic traits, one day a disease comes around and wipes you out. It's the same, I think, with the law. If you have the, own, if you have the ideas of one person or a small group of experts telling you what the law is, then you run the risk that society gets it wrong. They get it wrong, society therefore is functioning on rules that are wrong and society collapses. And if I jump out of the historical narrative and, and take you forward in time to the Third Reich, it, it's well known that Hitler took control constitutionally, albeit with underlying violence, he applied with the letter of the Constitution. But from that point on, he became the law. You had the memes of one man defining how that society worked and what you got was horror. What you got was destruction and a huge war to oust him. And it, if, if law is a meme, in this case, the memes of Hitler, in his mind, unchallenged, promulgated out in society, causes massive destruction. And in that case, what we needed to do was to expunge them from the earth through violence and more destruction. Um, and... Hopefully they have been at SpongeBob, there's neo-Nazis, of course, but for the most part, those memes have died out because they were stupid, they didn't work. They didn't work. Um, and we're better for it. So there, I suppose what I'm getting at there is that you start to see from the, through the mimetic lens how laws can, if they're not, if there's no mimetic battle going on, they're just one person's view 
or a group of experts view being imposed on a society, you're inviting trouble. So you need a mechanism to figure out what laws are going to be applied that deals with this issue, that it's not a good idea to just have the ideas of one person. Anyway, Western, going back to the historical narrative after Justinian, Western society did end up collapsing, and I'm not for a minute suggesting it was only because of the laws. Uh, but what you end up with, particularly as you head over towards England, and just excuse me for a second, um, what you end up with in about 1154 BC, uh, but, uh, sorry, in the Common Era, there's a bloke called Henry who finds himself ruling England. And uh, it's easy to say, well, look, there's this king who's ruling England, but what does that actually mean? Um, there's this idea, there's the Curia Regis. He had the court of the king. And there Henry and some of his close confidants and important people uh, made a whole bunch of the big decisions that affected his kingdom. But at that time, there, was, there were many different courts. For example, there were the ecclesiastical courts. There were the civil courts. And there was also the local barons, earls and so on, uh, doing a lot of the work on the ground. That is, they were each of those things, the courts ecclesiastical, the civil law courts and the, baron, the baronial courts, were taking power away from Henry. And so far as you've got some other power centre exercising it, some decision-making power, you as a king are not as strong as you might otherwise be. So it's not very good if you're the king um, and you might want to wrestle the kingdom under your control. Now... How can you do that? Well, you might send out some armies to hold the barons in check. You can rule, if you wish, with an iron fist. You can do as Hitler did and control people and force them to abide by your means and your laws by recourse to violence. You can promulgate a code, and, and interestingly, Henry did promulgate a code um, I'll try this. I'll try it. In, I won't say it in Latin because I'll mispronounce it. But it's treaty. He published the treaties on the laws and customs of the Kingdom of England. It's often known as the Glanville Treaties. But interesting thing about his treaties was that in addition to saying, you know, if you do X, Y happens, it had within it a series of procedural matters. Many of them, much of it, concerned procedural matters, including what we now know to be writs and uh, other forms that really define how matters should be decided rather than what the outcome is. So you get the beginnings of a process to determine what the right meme might be. And something brilliant happened, and I don't know whether this was Henry's idea or whether somebody else gave him the idea or whether it was just chance that, oh, we'll try this. But as you know, Henry starts sending judges out into the community. And, I mean, this is a brilliant idea. Um, brilliant what, beyond what I suspect Henry foresaw when he did it. But instead of sending out an army, he sends a judge. And the judges don't just go around making decisions willy-nilly. They look at what the local customs are. 
they look at the past precedents and they start synthesising what the common law, what we now understand to be the common law. It's fascinating. You think back to what I said about the tribal, having these memes that are in the heads of the individual tribes and the villages. And the idea that those tribes and villages that survive are the idea of the tribes and villages that have the right ideas, the right memes, the right laws. Now you've got these judges going out to these communities which are surviving and figuring out what their rules are, legitimising themselves and the king in the process and bringing those laws into a universal law and sorting out the obvious conflicts that would arise in circumstances where you've got different tribes and different villages in different places. So the judges are looking at what has happened in the past, figuring out what has worked, and then applying it. It's the first system, I say, that really sits, and perhaps the only one, that really sits in line with the mimetic nature of our reality. Excuse me. Customs that survive are the customs that lead to our survival. And I appreciate the the modern or the postmodern, or the modern at least, and certainly the postmodern view of the common law is not quite this. But there's much to be said for the idea, at least, that the judges aren't just making up the law willy-nilly, but rather they are actually looking for and finding the things that have worked and applying it. And if one talks about the rule of law, one is inevitably going to face the question, what is the source of law? Why should we be ruled by law? It's it's no longer sufficient to say God. Why should we be ruled by law? And the common law has an answer to this. Law is that which has worked in the past. And if there's no law on this particular issue then what we can do is look at the law that covers similar topics, think about it and apply it. And just like it is genes that give us the equipment, the hands, the feet, the eyes, that allow us to deal with new situations as they come, the common law and the memes that preceded and underlie it give us the way to deal with new situations as they arise. Now, it's still true today that even if we pretend otherwise, there are still the trappings of the religious underpinnings to the law. I, when I'm on my feet in court, still wear the robes of a monk. The judges wear the robes of a resplendent abbot. Uh, And we haven't really let go of that as much as we like to think we have, or some people like to think we have. We haven't. The common law has the other source, time immemorial, that is, that which has always been done and since it got us here, we should keep doing it. It's a pragmatic justification outside of the divine right of kings. Now, 
don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that that which has worked in the past should always apply in the future. I mean, that is an absurd proposition, particularly with technological change and so on. And we've got a lot of things completely wrong. But we have mechanisms for change. I can't pronounce this word, I never have been able to. Stairdecesis, the idea that the judges will be bound by their own law, ain't what it used to be. The House of Lords, I can't remember when, 1940s maybe, said that they were no longer, maybe 70s, were were no longer going to be bound by their own decision. So certainly the, the, the high courts are not going, are not bound by their own decisions. But even then, when they come to consider those decisions, as you know, they don't just willy-nilly change it. They look at the new factual situation. They consider the memes, the ideas, the basis of the things that have come before. And then, and only if it is abundantly clear that it is necessary that there be a change, do they change their position. It has to be a very good reason and it has to be based on some principle, that is, some other meme, some deeper meme. So, running a bit faster than I thought, but anyway, um, I've, I've ignored the other part of the law, um, the law, so far I've ignored it, the, the law that's made by Parliament. Uh, and I always like to note when I'm talking about Parliament, particularly the Australian Commonwealth Parliament, Uh, that Parliament has three parts and not two. It, of course, has the representatives and the Senate, but also the Queen. Her Majesty's role is, parliamentary role, is enshrined in the very first clause of our Constitution, which vests the legislative power of the Commonwealth in the Federal Parliament, quote, which shall consist of the Queen, a Senate and the House of Representatives. It is still the Queen, albeit through the Governor-General who signs off on our laws. And again, here we are hearkening back to this quasi-religious, this, this divine right of King's power. So what, what's going on there? Why, why, why is the Queen signing off on it? If we're meant to be a democracy, why, why is that there? It fulfils a purpose. The purpose is, and the, one may well debate whether it's necessary, but the purpose is it provides a justification for the laws. Now, if in my mimetic analysis the common law is out there finding memes that have worked in the past and applying them, what's Parliament doing? Okay. It's fixing the mistakes of the common law, the bites of the memes that are no longer working in the common law. It's throwing up new memes, right? New instructions. And I said to you at the start that the recipe for baking bread is a, is, a, is a meme. You can look at laws as recipes in that, and this is why the mimetic analysis kind of sheds light on this. Laws are recipes for about how, our government, how we govern ourselves or how we are governed, depending on your point of view. Um, it's throwing up, Parliament is throwing up new memes and new recipes about how We manage ourselves. Now, the source of these memes is, at least in theory, meant to be democratic. That is, we say, roughly a majority of people think that this is the way we should order our society. Uh, So we're going to impose that way upon the rest of everybody. 
That's very rough, but that, that's sort of the rough underpinning of it. Um, since the Enlightenment, at least, one presumes that the changes made by parliaments are evidence or policy-based, that is, some deep thinking has gone into our society, into how our society currently operates, using the best practices to analyse that, be they scientific or otherwise, and we've come up with an idea of how it should. That is, we look at the memes that are out there, we think about them, and we come up with a new one. And the democratic lawmaking process, if it is being done right, there's some pretty good indications, I say, that it's not currently being done right, um, involves consultation. So the people who are advising on cabinet minutes and drafting laws and so on go out there and learn what people think about particular issues and how they think about them. And that's kind of like the justices of the common law going out and figuring out what people think. So they go out there, they talk to a whole bunch of people, they synthesise what those views are and they come up with some ideas that go into the law. Similarly, they do research. The people advising the people who are making the laws, they go out and they look at how people have done these things in the past, all over the world. They see what's worked, what hasn't worked, and thinking deeply about it and how those things might apply to this jurisdiction, um, they suggest laws, memes. And where the problems have been solved before, that is to say where there is an extant approach, an extant meme that is working somewhere else that might be applied here, you hope at least that that's the choice that is made by Parliament. Now, that's high theory. In practice, it's probably not working like that at the moment. I'll come back to that in a minute. But if that's the basis of what goes before Parliament, you get to Parliament and there's an extra layer in Parliament, at least in theory, what, what I'd describe as a mimetic pressure cooker. Ideas are spoken, they are debated, they are tested, they fight themselves... It's a battle of the means. It's a battle of my mind against your mind if we're in Parliament about which idea is the best one for our society. And sometimes that battle comes all the way down to where should we put the comma in this line of this act? I don't know if you've ever had occasion to watch um, the Parliament sitting in committee deciding how bills should be amended. I thoroughly suggest you do not do that. It's incredibly boring. But that's where it can devolve to or evolve to. Um, and it's, it's there that you have this collective experience of ideas being shared between people, focused, put through a process, and what you come out of it, what you come out at the end is with a law, a new recipe for how our society operates. Now... I'm obviously stepping over a whole political reality there and then the reality of how these things work, and I'll come back to touch on that. But in terms of the institutional idea, that remains... And it works even if it doesn't, in a sense, because even if the people inside are mindless, unthinking, completely politically motivated, the fact that there is this place where they can go and fight it out is a microcosmic example of the meme being put out into society and hitting the minds of everybody in our society. You have this very small place 
where that can play out and hopefully what happens is a better version of what the law is emerges. So I don't have to tell you that the common law system and the parliamentary system run in parallel. Um, an interesting question, and this is a, as an aside, is whether the doctrine of parliamentary supremacy applies in the Commonwealth of Australia, that is the Commonwealth parts, not the states, certainly does in the states, but it's not clear to me um, that it does apply in the Commonwealth. Um, so I say that they run side by side. And if you're interested in that, the, the discussion in the transcripts of Cable in the High Court, I think about 1994, is worth reading where they're actually talking about, well, look, should, should Parliament even be supreme in the Commonwealth? Um, but leaving that aside, um, you've got these two systems creating instructions, memes, about how we as a society should operate. Now, it is at least arguable that the ideal approach that I've described is falling apart or has fallen apart, particularly the parliamentary aspect of it. Excuse me. One can speculate as to why... Uh, some might say that the media, particularly social media, with its incredibly fast news cycle, uh, that politicians and lawmakers are in effect forced to deal with, uh, leaves the lawmakers far more concerned with how things look like they operate rather than how they in fact operate. And so what happens is that instead of coming up with memes that tend to the betterment of our society, rules that tend to the betterment of our society, what politicians do is come up with rules that sound like they're good without actual recourse to the fundamental underlying policy and reality of our society. And if that is happening, and I think in many places increasingly it is, it's a problem. My own view is that the reason why that's happening is because we are actually lacking any acceptable dialogue as to what law is, what its foundation is. When law came from God or the divine right of kings, people had a basis to accept it. Well, this is what God says. This is what the king says, and the king is God's representative. And it may be that the people who administered the laws at that time were wholly cynical about invoking God or gods. But in terms of the people, that was the basis that it was put to them on. Now, that doesn't work anymore, at least in the West. Um, people do not believe in God in a way that makes that a justifiable basis for the law. And please, I, I'm a God-fearing man. I'm not, I'm not getting into an argument about whether or not God exists I'm saying that in the public discourse, it is no longer sufficient to point to a holy, almighty, unknowable power and say, that is why we order our society in this way. And I think that's good. But it leaves a lacuna, it leaves a vacuum. Because if it's not God, who's doing it? Where's objectivity? This is what Nietzsche is talking about when he talks about the death of God as well and, and we'll never be able to wipe the blood off our hands. It's like, well, what, what comes next? What's the whole? We in our postmodern world now eschew really 
any appeal to objectivity. And we're kind of left at this default position that, well, if there's nothing, it must just be power. And so the postmodern approach, I think, is to analyse law from the perspective of a power dynamic. It is a power dynamic, but it's not as simple to say that in every society the people with power decide what the law is. That was true in the Third Reich. Um, it's not necessarily true here. We have systems in place that force a mimetic, that effectively force people to have battles of ideas, a mimetic battle that define what the laws are. It's not just one person's imposition. And so if you look at it from the perspective of, well, the people with power decide what the law is, then it's like, well, how do you judge that? And the postmodern answer is, well, we'll apply some hard standards. We'll say fairness, equity, um, access and so on are the right ways to judge what these people in power are doing. Those things, though, lack any objective justification in the postmodern world. Where do they come from? And so you wind up with turtles all the way down because you just don't have a, you don't have a point where you say, hang on a second, this is what the law should be and this is why. If you start unpicking, if you start asking, if you ask enough questions, like the, the child who asks why until you rip your hair out, you can't get to an underlying source of the law. And, and I, I, one of the things I noticed you have to address in the syllabus is what, you know, what are the characteristics of just laws, fairness, equality, access and so on, and to have a discussion about the rule of law. To discuss those issues as if there, and I'm not suggesting you do this, but to discuss them as if there is nothing more than power underlying as the underlying basis for law is, in my view, too parsimonious. It's a little too facile. Um, the application of critical theory certainly leads to useful insights into what the law is doing wrong, and it's given us some great changes and is in the process of giving us some great changes. But what it does not tell you is what the law is doing right. And in our society, in my view, what we need to be saying, what we need to be explaining to as many people as we can is what the law is doing right and why it is that it's doing it right. We can't keep our... We have to keep our foot on the neck of it critically to make sure that we're not doing things wrong for sure. But there's this whole other world, which is this is what it's doing right and this is why it's doing it right. And so when you ask a question through a mimetic lens, for example, the question, how should we determine what the law is, you can answer it without recourse to brutal power dynamics. You can see that hidden under all of the institutions, probably not by design, perhaps by accident, and that's one of the beauty of memes, just like genes, you can accidentally evolve into something that works well, Underneath the institutions that we have is quite a sophisticated mimetic approach, an appeal to what works based on what we know has worked in the past, the common law, and an appeal to a process of argument and discussion 
in Parliament to decide what needs to be changed. This might not amount to an objective basis in some strict sense, but it's as close as we can to come to an objective basis to determine what the law is and what laws are just. And if we keep that squarely in mind, we can start to see that the real power of our institutions comes from their ability to provide recipes about how our society works, and though they don't always get it right, we can see the value that's there. If you think about it from the opposite perspective, and this is where I fear we may be headed, if you start to discount the forums for arguments, the discussions of memes, the processes of parliament and so on that I spoke about, there is another way that we can decide the laws that govern us. We don't have to let the memes fight. We can fight about the memes. Survival of the fittest can be brought down to really who's the fittest, who's the person who at gunpoint is going to buckle and who's going to die for the idea. And history is littered with the bodies of people who've died for ideas. There's no doubt that the people who administer the laws have power as a result of the fact of their being the administrators. Democracy, together with the, check, the, the checks of, ind, of independence of judges, as well as the fact that judges can only meet and give opinions on those things that come before them and not make law about all of society, puts important checks on that power. And so... So we see, I say, through the mimetic lens, the beauty of the Westminster system and the common law working together. It's built on the idea that ideas themselves can fight each other rather than having actual physical people fighting it out. Ideas can be tried and tested and what works will survive and go into the future and what doesn't won't. And we will get it wrong along the way. We have got it so wrong in so many ways so far. But the fundamental idea that ideas fight each other is one that is so important. The systems are sophisticated beyond their design. And although it's always important to be critical, it is equally important, I say, to try and figure out why law, the idea, the big mean plex of law, subsists in our society and it is in my view because it works thanks for listening Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.